welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Rich Lusk on March 24th, Lord's Day Service. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for bringing us together right now for a time of instruction from your word. We thank you that you will bring us together in just a bit for a time of covenant renewal, uh, when you will give us your gifts, the gifts of the kingdom, and we will uh, receive them and give you thanks and praise as your people. Father, we thank you for uh, Matt and the other leaders, the other elders here in this congregation. We pray for your blessings upon them. We thank you for this congregation and its vitality and its growth in the way that you have gifted and blessed this body. And uh, I pray that they would be a blessing here in Huntsville and far, far beyond. Father, we thank you for what you're doing uh, here in this place, and we pray that you would continue your good work. Bless us now as we turn to a study of your word. Give us insight and equip us, strengthen us, strengthen our faith, deepen our repentance, help us to better grasp the glory of Christ, your Son, our Savior, the glory of what he has done to save us. Uh, Father, we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so my understanding is you have been doing a, uh, maybe just started a series on biblical theology. And uh, so that's what I was asked to, to talk about uh, here in this class this morning. And I'll start off by giving you my take on what biblical theology is. You may have already talked about this. If so, pardon any repetitiveness, but this, this is how I see it, how I approach it, what, what I think when I hear those words biblical theology. I think it actually may be easiest to contrast biblical theology with another way of doing theology, what we could call systematic theology. Systematic theology looks at the Bible thematically. Biblical theology looks at the Bible narratively. Okay, so systematic theology looks at the Bible as a consistent system of truth. Biblical theology looks at the Bible as an unfolding story. And you can see how they both need each other and how there really shouldn't be any tension between them and indeed how they can complement one another. When you think of systematic theology, think of a circle like a pie, think of a circle and it's got it's cut into uh, various uh, pieces of the pie, and so different pieces of the pie might be um, theology proper, anthropology, Christology, eschatology, all these different major themes or major categories uh, that we can ask, what does the Bible say about this topic? What does the Bible say about this topic? And then we seek to, seek to organize uh, what the Bible says about any of these um, any of these categories. Biblical theology looks at the story as a line, or perhaps you might even say as a spiral. And I actually think describing it as a spiral rather than just something that's linear is helpful because it helps us realize that, yes, the Bible gives us a story that is going somewhere. It also gives us a story that has uh, repeating patterns within it. Uh, so biblical theology looks at the Bible as a developing story. It's got a plot. It's got tension within that plot. It's got an ultimate resolution. And so biblical theology looks for patterns within scripture, uh, what you might call typology. You familiar with that word, typology? I think that, that's a really important word. It's, uh, the Bible itself sometimes gives us explicit types uh, sometimes they're not explicit. Sometimes we have to tease them out uh, ourselves in our reading of Scripture. Typology is when a person, event, or institution prefigures and foreshadows what is to come. And as you move from the type to its fulfillment, there is an intensification and an escalation. Uh, so you can think of typology really as the rhythm of history. It is how God has structured history. Um, lots of examples of this uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter talks about the flood as a type of baptism. So the flood is an event that has its fulfillment in the Christian sacrament of Baptism. That'd be an interesting type to look at. That, that's a really interesting one. That's one of those explicit types. Uh, another example of this is the Bible's two-atom structure. 
There is the first Adam and there is the last Adam, the earthly Adam and the heavenly Adam. And Paul uh, in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, and again, you could tease this out in other places, you see this two Adam structure as a way of thinking about all of history. The first Adam was a type of the one to come. And the first Adam, of course, we know fell into sin. The second Adam comes and does what the first Adam should have done. He is what the, uh, what, what the first Adam should have uh, should have been, should have become. That's what Jesus is. He is the second Adam. And, and this two Adam structure, you'll find this all throughout the Bible. So for example, in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, well, I should, should say First and Second Samuel together, because of course that's all one book. The whole thing basically uh, follows this two Adam pattern. You have a first Adam who is Saul. And when Saul is first identified and made king, it says he became a new man, a new Adam. And he's described as a perfect physical specimen. And in all these ways, you can see how he's an Adam figure. But then when Saul gets put in his Garden of Eden, the kingdom of Israel, uh, he falls. And there's actually a threefold fall for Saul that really recapitulates the fall of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. And so because the first Adam has fallen, you needed a second Adam to come and take his place. And of course, that is David. And so the whole book of Samuel follows this two Adam pattern. You have Saul and you have David, and that's kind of a microcosm of this. A lot of other examples uh, of this we could, we could point to. And so one thing that this shows you is that typology is not just something that you should think of as types are in the Old Testament and then their fulfillment is in the New Testament. That is the basic pattern. We move from promise to fulfillment. The type is the promise and then you've got its fulfillment in, in Christ and the church. But uh, even within the Old Testament, there is an escalating typology. And, and even within the New Testament, there are types of the types, so types of the fulfillment. We could say everything is fulfilled in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. That means all the types and shadows find their fulfillment in Jesus. All the types are yes and amen in Jesus. But then following from that, if you look at the book of Acts, you will actually find that Stephen, Peter, and Paul, their ministry, their life history, their biography, whatever you want to call it, actually falls into the same pattern as the ministry of Jesus himself. And so Jesus has become a kind of type that is then replicated in his disciples. And so when Stephen is being stoned, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He echoes the words of Jesus on the cross. If you look at the experiences that Peter and Paul go through, all kinds of ways in which you could link that with the ministry of Jesus and see that the, uh, the ministry of Jesus is a type that is impressing itself upon the lives of these men. It's being replicated in the lives of these men. Now, I want to give you one example of a type. This is a way of doing biblical theology. I want to give you an example of a type that is found within the Old Testament itself. There's a kind of intensification and escalation of this pattern. But then, of course, there's an ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament scriptures in Christ and the church. Uh, the best example of this kind of type is the Exodus. And um, when I say Exodus, what do you think of? When I say Exodus, what comes to mind? You probably think of Moses and Pharaoh and the Red Sea parting for the Israelites so they can cross through the sea on dry ground. You may think of the Passover. Uh, you may think of leaving slavery in Egypt for the freedom of the promised land. You may think about the plagues and the plundering of the Egyptians. You might think of the glory cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire that led Israel uh, through the wilderness, that cloud that poured out water on them, according to Psalm 77, as they passed through the Red Sea, which is actually why uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that that Red Red Sea crossing was a baptism. Water was poured out from the glory cloud uh, on the Israelites. You might think of the wilderness wandering that comes after, uh, after the Exodus. You might think of uh, their inheritance of the promised land, because that's ultimately what the Exodus is pointing to. So when I say Exodus, you probably think of, of, of some um, number of these things. You probably think of a lot of different things here. The reality is there are actually multiple Exodus events before and after the Exodus we all think of. Multiple Exodus events. What is the plural of Exodus? Is it Exoduses? Is it Exodi? Exodi? That, that's maybe sounds, it's a little easier to say, Exodi. Yeah, so there are multiple Exodi in Scripture. Okay, even within 
the Old Testament. I can't give you all of these, but I want to I want to help you see this, see this pattern uh, that is at work in the scripture, because ultimately this pattern shows us something very important about our salvation, very important about the gospel. The Exodus that is recorded in the book of Exodus is obviously the one we all think of when we hear that word Exodus. And that is a pivotal foundational event in scripture. That Exodus made Israel a nation. That Exodus is so important. It is referenced in the preface to the Ten Commandments that God gave at Mount Sinai. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who redeemed you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's the preface to the Ten Commandments, the, the story of the Exodus. The Exodus was promised to Abraham. It was prophesied to Abraham 400 years or so before it happened. God told Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved and then set free, and then they would enter into their promised inheritance, the land of Canaan. But what's interesting is that the whole Exodus experience was foreshadowed in Abraham's own life experience. Abraham himself lives out the history that Israel will someday experience in his own life. There are certain features to the story of Abraham that are repeated again and again, including in the Exodus. So I'm not going to read a lot of scripture this morning because that would just take us too much uh, it, it would take too long for me to read all of these scriptures, but I'll just tell you what's happening, and you can, you can look these up if you would like to uh, get this in more detail. Genesis chapter 12, of course, that's when God appears to Abraham and calls him, and, and, and God blesses him and says, I will make you a blessing, and uh, through you I will bless all the families of the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 10... Famine drives Abraham into exile. Okay, one thing you need to, need to understand, when we talk about Exodus, the opposite of Exodus in the Bible is exile. Okay, so you have Exodus and exile. They, they sort of form a pair. Exile is when you're sent away from God's presence or away from the land of promise or away from the sanctuary, the place where God has put his name. Exodus is when you're brought back in. So exile and Exodus. Exile is being sent away. Exodus is when you are brought back in. So you can think of this as exit and entry. Exit from and entry into the promised land. Exile and Exodus. So Abraham uh, is exiled because of famine. And so he goes down to Egypt in Genesis 12.10. Isn't that interesting? He goes to Egypt. And what happens when he is in Egypt? Egypt. Well, one thing that happens is there is a threat against the bride, against the mother, Sarah. Think of Genesis 3.15. There's enmity between the woman and the serpent and between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. Well, here you see that enmity. Pharaoh is a serpent figure and he threatens the bride. And how does the bride fight back? Well, Abraham uh, counsels her to deceive the tyrant, to deceive Pharaoh. I would argue that is righteous deception, and righteous deception is often part of the Exodus pattern. You actually see that in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, with the Hebrew midwives who deceive Pharaoh in order to protect the baby boys, the seed of the woman. See, the woman is weak compared to the tyrant, and so how does she fight back? She fights back using deception. The serpent deceived the woman in the Garden of Eden. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so how does the woman fight back? She deceives the serpent. It's, it's lie for lie. And I, again, I would argue this is, in Genesis 12, justified deception. I'm not going to go into that. That's a, that'd be a class in itself. But that's how she fights back. Verse 16, when Abraham is down in Egypt, what happens to Abraham and his household? He is greatly enriched. You might even say he plunders the Egyptians. So when he leaves Egypt, he comes out with much greater wealth than he had when he went down to Egypt. And in verse 17, Pharaoh's house is plagued. And that's part of why uh, Abraham ends up leaving. Oh, and I should also add this. When Abraham gathers all this wealth, uh, when he's down in Egypt, and of course then when he, when he begins to, to leave Egypt and, and head back towards the promised land, he's going to use that great wealth to build an altar, which is kind of a miniature tabernacle. It's a place of worship. He's going to use those riches uh, to basically uh, to, to build an altar, to be, which will become, of course, a place of worship. 
that's always the goal, that, that the, the plunder that is received during the Exodus is used to build the house of God or the place of worship. Now, obviously, all those things that happen in Genesis 12, it's, it's very prophetic. All of this is going to re replay itself later in Israel's history. At the end of the book of Genesis, the Israelites go down to Egypt. Why? Because of famine. Once they're in Egypt early on in the book of Exodus, what do we find? There is an attack, not this time on the woman, but on the seed of the woman, the baby boys. There's, as I mentioned, the deception by the Hebrew midwives, plagues on Pharaoh's house, the 10 plagues in the book of Egypt. As the people leave Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians. And of course, they will use those riches to build the tabernacle, which is what you have at the end of the book of Exodus. They'll use those riches from the Egyptians to build God's house. The trajectory of the book of Exodus is from slavery to Sabbath. It is from building Pharaoh's house to building Yahweh's house, from building pyramids to building the tabernacle. It is from slavery to freedom. That's the trajectory. And of course, the turning point, the hinge on which all this turns is the Exodus itself. So they have their exodus where they cross through the Red Sea. God parts the sea for them. They cross through the Red Sea. And, and, and you can think about what happens next. They go to Mount Sinai where they are given the law. They fall into sin there. Uh, then they begin wandering in the wilderness because, they, uh, because of a failure of faith. They have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're led by the glory cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness. And then finally they enter into the promised inheritance of the land of Canaan. And that's when the Exodus is finally complete. That's what the Exodus has been pointing to. That's been the goal of the Exodus. Now, fast forward in Israel's history. They're living in the promised land, which is like another garden of Eden to them. That's how it's described, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's got vineyards and gardens. They didn't plant, just like Adam didn't plant all those uh, wonderful uh, fruit trees in the garden. They inherit all of that. But like Adam in the Garden of Eden, Israel falls into sin. And so like Adam, Israel has to be exiled from the promised land. And that happens first for the northern tribes of Israel and later for the southern tribe of Judah. Pagan empires come and enslave the people, scattering them in foreign lands. But before they even go into exile, the same prophets who threaten exile also promise another exodus on the other side of exile. So those same prophets who come to Israel and say, because you are in sin, you're going to be enslaved and exiled from the promised land. You're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your inheritance. You're going to be sent away from this Garden of Eden. You're going to lose your access to the sanctuary. Those same prophets also promise an even greater exodus that is to come. A new exodus, a second exodus in fact, Isaiah says it will be so great, it will be so much better than the first exodus, they're actually going to forget all about the earlier exodus under Moses. And the prophets make a big deal, not just of the coming exile, but of the exodus that will come after it. And the prophets, particularly Isaiah, in fact, there's a whole section, Isaiah 40 to 66, especially sort of dominated by this theme of Isaiah's new exodus. Isaiah uses exodus imagery and language to describe how God will redeem his people from exile. There's a whole vocabulary that comes with the exodus story. Words like redemption, because redemption has to do with setting slaves free. Uh, word, again, that very word freedom, uh, that's an exodus word. Anytime we're talking about redemption, slaves being set free, you know that we are in the realm, uh, we're in the, in the symbolic world of the exodus. And that is how Isaiah describes this coming redemption. God is going to reverse this exile. There's going to be another and much greater exodus. And God speaks through Isaiah this way so that the people will have a paradigm for understanding what he's going to do. When Isaiah speaks this way, using the language of the Exodus in the past to describe this coming redemption in the future, God is programming his people how to understand their redemption. So Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11 is a famous messianic passage, gets read a lot during Christmas time. It describes the coming Messiah as the root and branch of Jesse's tree. The family tree of Jesse has been chopped down, uh, but there's still life in it. And from that root, 
is going to grow a branch. And it actually describes Jesus as root and branch. Very interesting passage. How could Jesus come before Jesse and David and also come after them? Well, there's a little riddle, of course, that's solved by the incarnation. But you keep moving through Isaiah chapter 11 and how he describes this coming redemption. He uses Exodus imagery. And so in Isaiah 11, 15 to 16, God says he will make a highway out of Assyria, a highway out of Babylon, just like he made a highway out of Egypt. Isaiah chapter 43, especially verses 14 to 21, use Exodus imagery again. Verse 16, he will make a way in the sea. So when God brings his people back from this exile in Babylon, it's going to be like parting the Red Sea all over again. He's going to make a way in the sea. Verse 17, he will destroy the chariot and horse. He destroyed Pharaoh's chariot and horse. Once again, the enemies of God's people will be destroyed. Verses 18 and 19, he says, forget the former things. I will do, do a new thing. Forget all about the last exodus. I'm going to give you a much greater exodus, a better exodus. He says, I will make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. A road in the wilderness, that recalls Israel's wilderness wandering. Rivers in the desert, that recalls water from the rock in the desert uh, that the people drank from. And this is not just Isaiah. Ezekiel does the same thing. Ezekiel uses new Exodus terminology to describe how God will gather his people out of exile and form them once again into a nation of their own. The last eight chapters of Ezekiel's prophecy are taken up with the building of a new tabernacle, which, of course, that's how the book of Exodus ends, with the building of the tabernacle. So this is the kind of language, it's Exodus language that is used to describe the coming redemption. Jeremiah tells the people the exile will last 70 years and, again, will be followed by another Exodus. The exile will be reversed. Now, this is what's interesting. When the 70 years are up, Cyrus, who was actually called by Isaiah long in advance, uh, the Lord's anointed, he issues a decree for the Israelites to return to their land and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so it looks like, ah, oh, the 70 years of exile are over. Uh, the, 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 this glorious and new exodus is starting to happen. What the prophets promised, it looks like it's starting to come to fulfillment. There is this new exodus. And the book of Ezra, so Ezra and Nehemiah, of course, are, are sort of the, the, the vanguard. They're the ones who lead the way in this return to the land in the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the wall and, and, and the temple. Uh, you know, all of these things that the prophets had talked about that would happen. Ezra and Nehemiah are right at the front of that. It's really interesting. The book of, of Ezra is dominated by new exodus themes and patterns. So now it's starting to happen and consider this. In Ezra chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 we find that the Israelites plundered the Persians as they left Persia to, to go back to their land. They come back with plunder. They come back with gifts of gold and silver. Well what are they going to do with that gold and silver? They're going to build God's house. That's what they've always done when they come out of a pagan land with plunder. Ezra chapter 2, there is a list of the returnees. It is a census, just like the book of Numbers. Numbers gives a, it's actually a couple of, well, here we go again. What's the plural of census? Is it censuses? Is it census I? I, I don't know. Uh, but there, there are multiple uh, census events. How's that for like gr grammatical gymnastics to avoid having to say the plural? Uh, the book of Numbers, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's a book of numbers. It's counting the Israelites. Counting the Israelites who came out of Egypt. Well, in the book of Ezra, you've got the same thing. Now God is doing a head count of those who came out of slavery in Persia. And of course, just as in the book of Numbers, this is because the people are God's possession. He's claiming them for himself. That's what you've got in Ezra. You've got this census because God is claiming the people for himself. Ezra chapter 3, just as the first exodus led to the building of the tabernacle, this exodus leads to the building of the temple. And so they get to work. Ezra chapter 4, just like in the first exodus, there is opposition. You know, think about the first exodus. They had to uh, actually fight the Canaanites and displace the Canaanites in order to claim the land as their promised inheritance. Well, here in Ezra chapter 4, there are Canaanites who get in the way of their return to the land. These Canaanites oppose the work. They oppose the resettlement of the Israelites in their land. So there are Canaanites, once again, who resist them. Uh, Ezra chapter 5, in Israel's first exodus and entrance into the promised land, they struggled to keep themselves separate from the Canaanites. They compromised, especially through intermarriage. 
In Ezra chapter 5, you see the same issues cropping up. You might say history is repeating itself. We're on that spiral, and we've circled back around to these same issues that Israel experienced earlier in its history after the Exodus and the aftermath of the Exodus. If you go read Ezra, the book of Ezra, with Exodus and conquest themes in mind, you'll be amazed at the number of connections you can make. If you read it with that history of Israel in mind, you will be amazed at how many connections there are. And of course, all of these connections show us that there is uh, unmistakably a return from exile. There is a new Exodus. And again, remember, Exodus is just exile in reverse. It undoes the exile. That happens. But it also becomes quickly apparent that the exodus is not as glorious as the prophets had promised. This new exodus seems to be something of a false start. It gets, it gets off to a good start. It looks like it is going to be glorious. But then it kind of stalls out. And certainly it's not great enough to, to make the people forget the first exodus. And it doesn't seem great enough to be the true fulfillment of what the prophets had promised, like Isaiah when Isaiah described this coming new exodus and how glorious it would be. In fact, the return from exile turns out to be something of a disappointment. Those great blessings promised by Isaiah and by the other prophets don't seem to materialize. And so when the old men who were alive before the 70 years of exile began, those old men who could remember what Solomon's temple was like, when they see the rebuilt temple, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they actually weep because it is nowhere near as glorious as Solomon's temple had been. And certainly not as glorious as the temple uh, that Ezekiel described in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. It seems Israel has moved back to the land geographically, but spiritually Israel is still in the bondage of exile. Perhaps the exile has ended geographically, but spiritually, it seems like the exile has continued. And Ezra and Nehemiah even acknowledge this. In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra says, we are still slaves. To this day, we are still slaves. Or you could also read that, we are still exiles. Here we are back in our own land, Ezra says, and we are still exiles. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 30 to 36 to 37. He speaks of the pagan kings who still rule over them, even though they are back in the land. It's quite honestly the same situation you have in the New Testament era where you have Israelites living in their land. And of course, they do have a functioning temple and all of that, but they are also under Roman rule. And that's what creates a lot of the political agitating that's going on in the New Testament. Nehemiah says, we are slaves. So even though they're back in their land, he says, we are slaves. Our increase goes to pagan kings. They have dominion over our bodies and our cattle. We are in great distress. And so in the days of Israel's restoration, we have to ask, has the exile ended or not? Is there a new exodus or not? It's often called the post-exilic period. It's often called the restoration era. Is that right? Is it really a post-exilic period? Well, yes, in a way that's right, because there certainly is a new exodus. There is a return to the land. You can't deny that. That matters. The temple is rebuilt. The city is rebuilt. But it's also clear there's a very real sense in which Israel remains in exile and remains in slavery. And so we have to ask, what is going on? Well, this is what's going on. The real exile that has to be dealt with is not Israel's exile into Babylon or Assyria or Persia. The real exile that needs to be dealt with is the exile that happened when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. The real exile exodus is not so much about geography as it is about our relationship with God and our access to the heavenly sanctuary. It's about our relationship and our standing before God. The real exile that has to be dealt with happens in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve, after sinning, are exiled from the Garden of, uh, of Eden. And what that means is only the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, the new and final Adam can really bring about the needed and promised exodus. 
And so all of the exodi, all of the exodus events of the old covenant with Abraham and Moses and Ezra, they will all fall short of the goal. Okay, I talked about the two Adam structure in the book of Samuel. You've got Saul, and of course he falls into sin and gets disqualified. And then you've got David, and he's the second Adam. But what happens to David? He's not the true and final second Adam because he also falls into sin. Now he repents in a way that Saul does not, so he does get restored in a way Saul never gets restored. But it's clear, David, as glorious as he is, a man after God's own heart, the man who defeated Goliath, all, it, it is clear he cannot be the true final Adam. Another will have to come. And that's what you have here. You have all these Exodus events in the Old Testament, including that return from the Babylonian exile. But even that is not really the promised Exodus. It falls short of the goal. Israel was always in exile because the whole human race was always in exile from Genesis 3 on. Now, it would be interesting to consider exactly how God fulfilled his promises and what happens. Jeremiah said exile would last 70 years. Did God keep his promise or not? Well, again, at the end of 70 years, they did return uh, to the land geographically. If you really want to dig into this, what is really, really fascinating is in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel recalls Jeremiah's 70 years. He knows the 70 years of exile uh, that Jeremiah talked about are just about up. So it's just about time for the exile to be over. But he realizes the people are still in sin. They're not yet ready to return from exile. And so Daniel begins praying and he's confessing sin and the angel Gabriel shows up and gives him a vision of 70 times seven years, 70 weeks of years, 490 years. And this, I believe, is God revealing through Daniel that the exile is actually going to be extended 490 years from that time. There's going to be another 490 years from the, from the time when the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem, the exile will be extended another 490 years. Now, there is some debate as to exactly when the 490 years begin. Uh, when does that prophetic clock start to tick? A lot of debate about that. I'm not going to try to solve that for you this morning. There's a lot of debate about the chronology and exactly when different things happen. And is Cyrus's decree, clearly that's an important decree when Cyrus decrees for the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and, and all of that. But there's another decree that's actually recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. I think it's also in Ezra chapter 7 by Artaxerxes. And the best guess is this takes place sometime around 456 B.C. And a lot of scholars think, okay, that's the decree when the 490 years begin 456 B.C., fast forward 490 years, that brings you to 26 B.C., which is right about the time Jesus begins his public ministry. When the exile does finally come to an end and the ultimate glorious exodus, the prophets prophesied, begins. In fact, it's interesting. Let me give you something else here. Matthew chapter 1, whatever the, the specific details about the chronology, Matthew chapter 1 confirms that this is how we should think about Israel's history. Uh, well, let me just read to you Matthew chapter 1. And I hope, my, I hope Matthew chapter 1 is still in my Bible. The page actually came out, so it's a little challenging to read it. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. I actually I am having trouble reading this. Let me, this page is... This is what Matthew says, kind of summary. He's just given the, 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 uh, the um, genealogy of Jesus, and this is how he summarizes it in Matthew 1.17. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon, that's the exile, are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon, again, that's the exile, until the Christ are 14 generations. Okay. What is Matthew doing? This is, this is Matthew's schematic. This is Matthew's way of summarizing Israel's history. He breaks that history into three blocks. 
Abraham to David, that's 14 generations. David to the start of exile, that's another 14 generations. The exile in Babylon down to the Christ, that is 14 generations. So according to Matthew, when does the exile end? When does the exile come to an end? Not with the restoration of the people under Ezra and Nehemiah, not with that restoration to their land and the rebuilding of the city and the temple. No, Matthew hops right over that. And it's not that that's insignificant. That does count. That's, that's still significant history. But Matthew jumps right over that. And he says the exile lasted 14 generations. The start of exile in Babylon lasts 14 generations. And it comes to an end in the generation of the Christ, the coming of the Christ. In other words, Matthew introduces his gospel by saying, hey, let me tell you a story about the end of exile. You Israelites, you've been waiting for the end of, of the exile. You have been waiting for the exodus to happen, the exodus the prophets promised. I'm going to give you a story about the end of exile. The story of the Christ is the story of the new exodus. The new exodus has just happened. And I've written it down for you. I'm telling you about it. I'm preaching that story to you in my gospel. That's what Matthew is saying at the very beginning. Think about that hymn, that classic Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Okay, this is one of the, the most theologically rich hymns in the history of the church. But it includes these lyrics. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom or redeem, that's Exodus language, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile until the Son of God appear. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, what, what is the hymn saying? Israel is in exile. Israel is mourning in lonely exile. And Israel needs to be ransomed or redeemed. And that's going to happen when the Son of God appears. And so the coming of Jesus into the world, one way to summarize it, one way to summarize the gospel is to say the gospel is the fulfillment of the promised new exodus. It is the end of exile. Matthew's gospel ends the exile with the coming of the Christ. Matthew gives us three blocks of 14 generations. That is also six blocks of seven. Seven, of course, is uh, the, the number of perfection in the Bible, the number of new beginning. And so that's another way of thinking about this. It is the beginning of a new creation. Here's yet another way to think about this. How long is a generation in the Bible? A generation in the scripture is 40 years. So 14 generations, 40 years each. That's the, the number the Bible gives us for a generation. 14 times 40 is 560 years. Take Jeremiah's 70 years of exile. Jeremiah said the exile would last 70 years in chapter 25 and chapter 29. 70 years. Add to that Daniel's 490 years when he says the exile will be extended in Daniel chapter 9. 70 plus 490 gets you to 560. It's a really nice match. In other words, Matthew is saying this exile lasted 14 generations. Daniel tells us it's going to last 490 plus 70, 560 years. It's the same thing. They're both talking about the same thing. That's how N.T. Wright puts it. I think he gives a good summary of what Matthew is doing. He says, the structure of the genealogy, so this is Matthew 1.17, shows where he will lay the stress. Other Jewish books of the period structured Israel's history into significant periods. Matthew is following a standard tradition, though adapting it to his own ends. His three periods of 14 generations may well be intended to hint at six periods of seven generations, so that Jesus starts the seventh seven, the climactic moment of the series. Abraham is the start. This is not the story of the world as a whole, as in Luke, whose genealogy goes back to Adam, though Matthew has not forgotten about the world outside of Israel. It is the story of Israel. The next focal point is David. So he starts with Abraham that tells you he's locked in on the story of Israel. The next focal point is David. Matthew's story, like Luke's, though with a different emphasis, focuses on Jesus as the true David, the Messiah. The third focal point is unexpected, the exile. This is not so regular. 
regular a marker within Jewish schemes, but for Matthew it is crucial. Most Jews of the second temple period regarded themselves as still in exile. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah did. They regarded Israel as still in exile, still suffering the results of Israel's age-old sin. Until the great day of redemption dawned, Israel was still in her sin, still in need of rescue. The genealogy then says to Matthew's careful reader that the long story of Abraham's people will come to its fulfillment in the seventh seven with a new David who will rescue his people from their exile, that is, save his people from their sins. That's how he puts it a few verses later. That's what Matthew says in um, what, Matthew 121. And that should not surprise us. For Matthew, saving Israel from her sins is bringing about the new exodus. That is a way of understanding it, bringing about the end of the exile. Now, this is what is interesting. This is really the key thing. Matthew's genealogy shows us Jesus came to bring about the new exodus, the real return from exile. The rest of the New Testament reinforces that point again and again and again. So let me give you an example of this. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, this is Luke's account, Luke chapter 9. When he is on the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, Moses and Elijah uh, appear. And this is what Jesus says. Came to pass eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James. He went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, this is what's interesting. That word decease, some translations have it as departure, but in the Greek, it is the word exodus. When Jesus is being transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with him, what do they discuss? They discuss the exodus he is about to accomplish. Well, what does that mean? What is the exodus he is about to accomplish? Well, clearly that is a reference to his crucifixion. When Jesus is being transfigured and they discuss his coming crucifixion, the way that is summarized in Luke's account is to say they are talking about his exodus. They're talking about the upcoming exodus he's going to accomplish. The exodus will take place in his crucifixion. Now, how is the exodus, how is the exodus fulfilled in the crucifixion? How can the crucifixion be understood as an exodus that Jesus accomplishes? Well, let me tell you. The crucifixion accomplishes our exodus because it is Jesus' exile. He undergoes exile in his crucifixion so that we can be granted exodus. The crucifixion of Jesus is his exile. That was the curse of the covenant. And Jesus bears that curse when he dies on the cross. He is exiled from the city. He's crucified outside the city. He's exiled from Israel. All of Israel and, and, and especially his disciples, his friends, his band of disciples, they all abandon him. He is exiled. He is left to mourn in lonely exile. He will bear that curse for Israel's sake. And indeed, there's some mysterious sense in which he is exiled even from the fellowship of the Trinity as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not that the Trinity ceased to exist or anything like that, but Jesus, the Son of God in human form, bears the curse of the covenant, he suffers what our sins deserve, which is to say he undergoes hell on the cross. That's what exile ultimately is about. He endures hell. He endures the curse of exile on the cross. But he undergoes exile in order to accomplish our exodus. Because he is exiled, we are, ex we are exodist, if I can turn it into a verb. He's cast out so we can be brought in. He's exiled so we can be restored. That's the whole meaning of the cross. He's cursed so we can be blessed. He in some way experiences this loss of fellowship. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we can be brought into the deepest fellowship and communion possible with our heavenly father. That's what it's all about. The cross is an exodus event. Now, if the cross is an exodus event, what should we expect next? We should expect the rest of this exodus pattern to follow, and that's exactly what you happens, what you see happening. So we should expect opposition 
and compromise. Because that's what always happens after an Exodus event. There is opposition and compromise. Well, yes, there is. Is there opposition in the New Testament to the church, to the new Exodus people, to the people who have experienced this Exodus that Jesus has accomplished? Do those people face opposition? And do some of them fall into compromise? Well, yeah, you bet. They experience opposition from the Jews and from the Judaizers and eventually from the Romans. Some of them fall into compromise. They intermarry in some way with the world. Galatians is about that. Revelation shows us that. Is there a plundering of enemies that takes place? You bet there is a plundering of enemies. To build the Lord's house, to, to, to form this new Israel, how does that happen? It happens out of the spoils of the old world. As Jews and Gentiles are converted... What is Jesus doing? He's plundering Satan's house. Remember Jesus told a parable about that? I will find the strong man and plunder his house. Satan is Pharaoh in this, story, in this telling of the story. And we are the plunder. We are the gold and silver that, that, that Jesus as the greater Moses, we are the plunder he takes for himself to build his own house. And so you see the new temple being built. Of course, that temple is the church. You have an exodus and then you have a house building. After Jesus' crucifixion, the church begins to be built, the house of God. And, of course, enemy is destroyed. And, in, 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 at least in some way, you see this happen in 70 A.D. Uh, when the Jews who had persecuted the church are destroyed. Uh, that's Jesus' wrath being poured out on the enemies of the church in 70 A.D., using the Romans as his instrument. And, of course, it will happen in a final way at the last day. So you have an exodus and everything else fits that pattern. Everything else falls into the same pattern we've seen again and again and again. Let me give you one more example of this and then I'll, I'll stop. We'll maybe have a couple minutes for questions. The Apostle Paul uses the Exodus and the subsequent history of Israel as a paradigm for explaining to us our redemption, for explaining to us the gospel in Romans chapters 5 through 8, especially Romans chapters 6 through 8. In Romans 6 through 8, the story of Israel, I'll use some big words here. In Romans 6 through 8, Paul uses the, the, the story of Israel as the narrative substructure for his teaching. It, it's kind of like the history of Israel is the skeleton, you know, the, the, the bones, and he's going to put the flesh on it in, in Romans 6 through 8. But the story of Israel, the history of Israel is the skeleton. That's the, the narrative substructure. Uh, so start in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul starts to tell a story that by this point should sound very familiar. Romans chapter 6 tells the story of slaves who are freed. Talks about slavery to sin and how we've been set free. You were slaves to sin and now because you've been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, you have been set free. And then he tells us how to use our freedom. Okay, well, again, any story that involves slaves being set free in the Bible, that's an Exodus story. And what's the pivotal turning point? How do we go from slavery to freedom? Okay, so if you're thinking about this in terms of, of the Exodus story, when Paul says we've been slaves to sin, that tells you sin is, is our Pharaoh. Okay, sin is our Egypt. And we need to be brought out of that slavery to, to Pharaoh, to, to sin, we need to be brought out of that slavery in Egypt, and we need to be brought to freedom. Well, how's that going to happen? In the book of Exodus, it happens through the Red Sea crossing, which we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul calls that Red Sea crossing a baptism. Well, Paul uses that same imagery in, in Romans chapter 6 of baptism to describe this freedom that we now have. We are freed in baptism. That is our Red Sea crossing. Again, anytime you're in this realm where you've got a, a story being told of slaves being set free through a water event. That is the symbolic world of the Exodus. In baptism, Paul is saying, we've been set free from Egypt. The waters of baptism have drowned Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of sin. Christ is our new Moses bringing us to freedom. That's Romans 6. Baptism is the Red Sea crossing. Pharaoh is sin and Egypt, and we've been set free. Well, what happens after the Red Sea crossing in the history of Israel? They go to Sinai where the law is given. We'll move from Romans 6 to Romans 7. You've moved from, from baptism, our Red Sea crossing being set free in chapter 6. What does chapter 7 deal with? The law. 
And it's all about our relationship with the law. And it's about what happens with the giving of the law and the struggle to obey and the way the law exposes sin. The law is good and righteous and holy, but it can only kill, it cannot give life. And so if you read Romans 7 with Israel's experience at Mount Sinai in view, including the golden calf incident, you will see all kinds of parallels. Israel has just been made alive and set free in the Red Sea crossing. And then they go back and enslave themselves. They die by falling into sin, falling into idolatry. That's Romans chapter 7. The next thing that happens, of course, is Israel begins to wander through the wilderness. And as Israel wanders in the wilderness, they are led by the pillar of cloud and fire as they are on their way to receive the inheritance of the promised land. Well, that is Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit takes the place of the pillar of cloud and fire. Or you might say the Holy Spirit was in the pillar of cloud and fire all along, leading the Israelites. And now Paul says it's that Holy Spirit that leads us, that same Holy Spirit that leads us in the Christian life. Romans 8 contrasts the spirit of adoption with the spirit of slavery. And the way Paul describes it, you see clearly in Romans 8, the Spirit is leading us to our promised inheritance, which is not just Canaan, but a renewed cosmos that Paul describes in Romans 8 what, 17 to 25 or so. It's not just Canaan, but a renewed cosmos. The whole creation will experience an exodus, a liberation from bondage to sin. Liberation from sin and its corrupting power. That's the final glorious inheritance we are promised. So Romans 6 through 8 tell the story of the Christian life through the prism of the story of Israel. It uses the story of Israel as the, 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 the narrative paradigm, the pattern for explaining the Christian life. Again, Romans 6, Israel's exodus and Red Sea crossing. We move from, from slavery to freedom because Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of sin, is drowned in the waters of baptism. Romans 7, Israel's experience with the law. The law is good, but it can only kill when the law is given. Sin is intensified. That's Israel's experience at Sinai. That's often our experience with the law as well. And then Romans chapter 8, we are led by the Spirit as Israel was led by the pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness of this life as we are heading towards the promised land of the new creation. That is our inheritance. Canaan pictured that. It pictured that. But what it ultimately pointed to is this whole liberated, renewed cosmos. That's the ultimate victory. And so what you see with this is the Exodus story is really the gospel story. The Exodus is a, it's a picture or a paradigm that God has given us to help us understand our redemption. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.